My name is Colin Crawford. I'm pastor of discipleship and students here at Hebron Baptist. Uh, If you're a guest with us, thank you so much for coming. We're so excited to see you. Uh, We're in our fourth week of a study through the book of Exodus, particularly focusing on chapters 1 through 14. Today we're in Exodus chapter 4. If you have your pew Bible in front of you, we're on page 49, so you can turn with me there. The title of this sermon is, The Lord Shows Us Where to Look. The Lord Shows Us Where to Look. I don't know about you, but as we sang, uh, for my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. So often, I, I find myself looking in the wrong places. I find myself taking my eyes off of Jesus, whereas in the book of Hebrews, we've been told to fix our eyes on him, we so often get distracted. I don't know about you, but one of the places I often look is inward. Rather than upward to Christ, I look inwardly to myself and I get distracted. Well, we recently moved here, as many of you know. Uh, we, we actually moved into our house last Friday. So we've been unpacking and uh, dealing with that. But one of the things I'm thankful for is the fact that my wife, Emily Faith, has been really good about, she was very meticulous in labeling our boxes. So that when we, when we got there and started unpacking, it made things a lot easier. Uh, There were some boxes that I packed and I did not label well, and so there's been uh, some frustration in trying to find things that I need. But the labeling system, it helps us know where to, it it helped us know where to look. It kept us from looking in wrong places. It kept us from wasting a lot of time. What we're gonna see today is Moses, this great figure, right? Two weeks ago, I preached Exodus chapter two, and we saw how Moses is this awesome figure, very, very important in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. And he foreshadowed, in a lot of ways, Christ. Moses was the deliverer of of Israel. He was going to bring them out of, the Lord would bring uh, Israel out of slavery through his ministry. And that parallels a lot of ways with, with Christ that Christ is our great deliverer, the deliverer better than Moses. We're gonna see today a stark contrast. Today we're gonna see just how different Moses and Christ are. Moses was looking in the wrong place in this chapter. He was often making excuses, looking inwardly, and in his failures, he actually provokes God to anger in this chapter. I believe that this chapter, through the life of Moses, can show us where to look that we're to keep our eyes on God's promises, God's presence, and ultimately in his person, Jesus Christ. Let's read the text together. Exodus chapter four, it's a long chapter, 31 verses, so bear with me. But we're gonna cover it all because it's God's word. Exodus four, starting in verse one. It said, Moses answered, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it it had again become like the rest of his skin. 
If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I have, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he's on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, Make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he'd commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that they had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. There's a lot there, isn't there? <laughs> It's a lot to cover today. Look with me uh, to the first point, and that's that we are to look to God's promises, not to signs. What we see in the first nine verses is that this is really a continuation of what Alan preached on last week. He covered chapter three, famous chapter, Moses' experience at the burning bush. Moses drawn nears in, in the Sinai wilderness at, at this mountain, and he sees a bush that is, is, is aflame, but it's not being consumed. And it would be really easy for us to skip from chapter three to chapter five. We just jump from the burning bush right to five. Moses is back in Egypt and they're ready to stand before Pharaoh. Really, when we tell the story, if we're summarizing, maybe in Bible stories, we skip a lot of what happens here in chapter four. 
especially that weird part about the circumcision. <laughs> we'll get there. But I think it's, there's a lot here in this text that God has included. It's inspired. It's important. It's just as important as the rest of Scripture. So what we see here is in chapter 1 through 9, Moses's uh, dialogue, his conversation with God, it really begins to devolve. It really begins to fall apart. The wheels begin to fall off the wagon, so to speak, as Moses is talking with God. Two of the things that Alan covered, Moses had already asked God two questions at this point. The Lord had told him his job, that he was to lead Israel out of slavery. And uh, his first question when the Lord tasked him with this was, who am I? Who am I that that you would call me to do this? It's a a question that makes sense to us, right? I mean, it sounds like humility on Moses' part. The second question, uh, when the Lord continued to speak to him, is he said, and who are you? Moses said, what, what's your name? Reveal your name to me. If the people ask what God sent me, what am I supposed to say? So the first two questions, they kind of make sense. Who am I and who are you? But here, Moses asks a third question. We begin to see some of the motivation for Moses, why he's asking questions to begin with. Notice verse one, chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, what if they won't believe me? and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. This, this third question causes some concern, and here's why. God had already told Moses three times in different ways that the mission would be a success. In chapter three, verse 12, the Lord told Moses, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I'm the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. So the Lord had already told Moses that, hey, (laughs) it's gonna be a success, and this is the sign. You're gonna come back. You're gonna lead the people out of Egypt, and you're gonna worship right here where I've appeared to you. The Lord had promised. Again, in verse 20, chapter three, verse 20, The Lord said, when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that, he will let you go. Again, chapter three, verse 18, he says, they will listen to what you say. So when Moses starts off by saying, what if they don't believe me? He's basically spitting in the face of God's promises. God in his sovereignty is telling Moses, they're gonna listen to you. They'll believe you. Pharaoh's gonna let you go. You're gonna come back and worship right here. But what does Moses say? What if they don't believe me? He's basically saying, yeah, 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 I hear hear you, but what if? (laughs) What if they don't? Causes us some concern. So God graciously provides three signs that was to stimulate uh, faith and belief in in God's, uh, God's work, his plan for Egypt, or for Israel. He provides these three amazing signs, the sign of the staff, the sign of the hand, and the sign of the blood, right? The the staff, Moses' staff would turn into a serpent and he would pick it up again. Moses' hand would become leprous when he put it in his cloak and he would pull it out again and it would be like a hand of flesh. Moses could pour water from the Nile and it would become blood on the ground. All these signs are amazing, they truly are. But let's not forget the only reason that they're necessary is because of unbelief. Moses' unbelief, Israel's unbelief. What I want us to see is that it's the sinful, unbelieving heart that asks for signs. We have that first quote from Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. 
It's all right, I can read it. It says, Jesus, when he was speaking with some of the scribes and Pharisees, they answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus had already performed numerous miracles among the scribes and the Pharisees and the people of Israel, but what do they do? They, they continue to ask for more. They wanna see a great sign, a, a working of power. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not gonna give it to you. That's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign. And he says the only sign that's gonna be giving is the sign of Jonah. He's referring to his death and resurrection. I think about the disciple Thomas, right? He unfortunately gets the moniker Doubting Thomas. Now, I think that's unfortunate because Thomas shows great faith, faith elsewhere in scripture. But in John chapter 20, what happens? Jesus had already appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, but Thomas wasn't there the first time. So Thomas joins up with the rest of the disciples. They tell him what happened and he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe them. What does he say? He says, infamously, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. So later Jesus appears and what does he do? He goes right to Thomas and he has Thomas put his finger in the nail wounds and in his side and what does Jesus say? Sorry, what does Thomas say? Thomas, in, in, in having this encounter with Jesus, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God, confesses him for who he is. But Jesus looks at him and says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here we get a, a, a sense of what the Christian life is all about. We live by faith, not by sight, right? Second Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians 4, 18, we look to things, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, but things that are unseen are eternal. The definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We don't need to look for signs. We don't need to look for signals, we have faith. So for, if anyone here this morning is an unbeliever, you're still sensing it out, you're maybe seeking, you're in this kind of place where you're, you're looking for truth but you haven't found it yet, don't get it backwards. It's faith first, then understanding later. It's not understanding seeking faith, it's faith seeking understanding. If you are waiting to figure everything out before you come to commit to following Jesus, you're never gonna come to him. I've had so many conversations with people who are genuinely seeking for truth. They're examining other world religions. They're, they're reading a lot of good books. And they, they just haven't gotten to a place where they're comfortable committing to Jesus. And one of the things I try to tell them is, you'll never get to that place on your own. It's a commitment to follow Jesus and sight comes later. God is, if you're an unbeliever here, don't wait for God to write it in the sky because he's not gonna do that. He's already spoken to you in his word the sign of Jonah. If you are looking for a sign, look to Jesus' death on the cross for you and his resurrection. The tomb is empty, okay? He is who he said he is. You can believe in him and be saved.
God has already spoken to you. For believers, okay, some of us have a more, I'll put it, more mystical bent to us. And you, you know who you are. Some of us are a little bit more maybe superstitious or mystical. We look for signs. Maybe we're like Gideon. If we, we're, we were wondering whether God is gonna have us do something, we may ask him to do a certain things, make it clear what he wants us to do. I don't believe this is how we're meant to live as Christians. We don't look for signs. We don't wait for God to write it in the sky. Hey, sometimes he does. Sometimes God in his miraculous grace, he provides a sign like that. But our ability to discern them is always imperfect because we are sinful people. Sometimes God, God does write it in the sky and we're not looking. Look to his word. As Christians, we look to God's word and his promises, not to signals and signs. The Bible tells us that God in his word has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So why would we look for signs and signals? We don't need to. He's given us everything in his word. So what do we see in the first point? We see that rather than believe God's promises, Moses is looking for something else. He's looking for signs. He desired signs. Look with me now to verse 10 to see Moses' second objection. It says, but Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Here again, we see Moses' objections continue to get worse. Moses is concerned with his own abilities. This leads us to our second point, which is to look to his presence, not to your own shortcomings. Moses is simply doing two things. Number one, Moses is saying, if you wanted me to do this, God, you would have made me differently. How often do we do that? We excuse our disobedience by saying God has not gifted me this way. It's, guys, it's about obedience, it's not about gifting. There are things in his word that he's crystal clear on, it doesn't matter your giftings. We're called to be generous givers. Doesn't matter how much we have. We're called to be hospitable people. It doesn't matter our personality or the size of our house. He's called us all to evangelize. It doesn't matter if that's not my gifting. I see this so often, so often with, I'm talking with somebody and they say something along the lines of like, well, I don't have much of a story. I don't have much of a testimony. And what they mean by that is they weren't saved out of drugs or something like that. But what are we really saying when we say, I don't have much of a testimony? Think about that. Is that not a critique on God? That the, the who, the when, the why, the how, the details of your life story, which God is completely sovereign over, that he didn't do it in a, in a spectacular enough fashion for us to be comfortable to talk about it to other people. Is that not a critique on God? If our response to whatever it is that God and his word is calling to us, if it's, oh, that's not my thing, oh, I don't really do that, that's not my gifting, what we're doing is we're disobeying him and then we're putting that back on God. We're critiquing him because he didn't make us a certain way. That's what Moses is doing. Lord, I'm, 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 slow, of, I'm slow of mouth, I'm, I'm sluggish of mouth. He's putting it back on God, that's what he's doing. Number two, it's also prideful, really, 
because Moses is acting as if the reception of the message depends on his ability to present it. It depends on his speaking abilities, right? And notice, stick with me here, notice that God does not dispute what Moses is saying. God doesn't care whether Moses is slow of speech or not. Whatever Moses means by that, whether it's that he wasn't educated, his Hebrew, or sorry, his, his Egyptian needed a little work as of his time in the wilderness, whether it meant he had a speech impediment, whatever it means, God doesn't not talk about it one bit. God doesn't dispute it. God doesn't take him by the side and give him a pep talk. He, he, doesn't, get, he doesn't raise up his self-esteem because that's not the point. He's not like, Moses, you're being a little hard on yourself. Moses, give you more credit. No, the point is, Moses, it's not about you. I'll be with you. And that's what he's already promised Moses. He's promised two things, that the message would be received, that the people would believe, and that he would be with him every step of the way. And guys, he's promised us the exact same things. The mission of Christians to share the gospel, it will be a success. The kingdom is going to come in its fullness. The vision of heaven and revelation, a people of every tribe, language, people, nation, that's a success, is it not? The Lord will be faithful to save his people. And he's going to be with us in the Great Commission what is the last thing Jesus says? And, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So if we know the mission will be a success, and if we know that God will be with us, why do we make excuses? Why do we not go? Do we not believe the promises? I believe it's the same thing that, we've, that Moses has done. He's taken his eyes off of God's presence, off of his promise, and he's looked inward. Guys, that's the quickest way to doubt and despair. Take your eyes off of Jesus. Look at yourself. That's the quickest way. But guys, he's gonna be with us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He said he would be with us to the end of the age. And that changes the way we encourage one another, doesn't it? Because if someone is struggling with doubt and unbelief and, and, and doubting their own abilities, the way the Lord has gifted them, we don't need primarily to come aside them and say, hey, you're really better than you thought you were. No, 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 you're a much better speaker than you're saying you are. We'd be missing the point. Because again, it's not about our eloquence, it's not about our abilities, it's on the fact that God is with us. That's how we need to be encouraging one another. Take them aside and be like, hey, I understand your fears, I feel it too. But remember, he promised to be with us and he promised that people would believe. That's encouraging. What's not encouraging for me is for someone to say, hey man, you got this. You got this, you're, you're way better than you think you are. That's not encouraging, is it? We need God's presence, we need God's promises. And by the way, God's not looking for eloquence, he's looking for faithfulness. Paul apparently was a, was a poor speaker. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul's distract, detractors had said, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Do we have the, the quote, 
the scripture reference from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. Paul acknowledges this and uh, he speaks to it. Do we have that? Paul said to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Guys, I was pretty nervous this morning when I was getting ready to preach. That's com- that is comforting for me. I don't have to be eloquent. I don't have to come in words of wisdom and empower, but pray that God by his spirit would give a demonstration of power that he would speak to us. That's not only comforting for me, it's comforting for you because we're all called to be ministers of the gospel, preachers of the gospel of reconciliation. And when you go, he'll be with you. It's not about your eloquence. Tony Morita has a quote, maybe it'll come up. He says, God is not looking... He says, God is looking for reporters, not orators. We do not have to make fine speeches. We just give the news. That's comforting and so humbling. Look with me at verse uh, 13. In verse 11 and 12, the Lord answers and (laughs) answers Moses' concerns. He says, "I'll, I'll help you speak. I'll teach you what to say. But Look at Moses' last objection. This is where the wheels completely fall off the wagon. Verse 13, Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. We've finally gotten to the heart of the matter. Last chapter, we saw Moses' first two questions. Well, who am I, Lord, that you would send me? Who are you? What's your name? We see his first, first two concerns. It continues to get worse, right? And now, once all the questions have been answered, Once all the objections have been stripped away, we're left with the heart of the matter. And that's Moses simply did not want to obey. How often do we couch our unbelief and our fundamental unwillingness to obey? How much do we couch that and we cover it, make it look all nice with these philosophical or theological objections, excuses, when really, if all that was stripped away like it was for Moses, we're simply left naked and exposed before God because we do not want to obey. Moses didn't have a speech issue. He had an obedience issue. God had already called Moses to go four times in chapter three, verse 10, 16, 18, and in verse 12, what you see, the refrain over and over again is go, go, go. And Moses simply says, here am I, Lord, send someone else. So what does the Lord do? In verse 14 through 16, it says that the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he brings up his brother Aaron. The Lord basically gives Moses a help. He gives him a companion. He gives him his his own brother, Aaron, who's more eloquent, better at speaking than him. But notice, the Lord was angry with Moses when he did this. That's important to remember. Because if you look back 
to chapter 3, verses 16 through 22, where God is saying what Moses is to do, what he's charged him to do to, to appear before Israel, to appear before Pharaoh, what you notice is Aaron is not there at all. Aaron is never mentioned the first time God talks about it. Aaron only comes into the picture because Moses' Moses' reluctance to obey. Here's what that means for us, guys. God's will is going to be done regardless of what we do. It's, It's gonna be done. But it also leaves room for human actions, doesn't it? God has determined to work through his people. He has. He's going to work through us. He's going to bring the gospel to the nations. But he's also determined in his providence, in his sovereignty, to sidestep disobedient and reluctant Christians. We get on board or we miss out on the blessing. That's essentially what's happening with Moses. Moses did not want to obey. He gives them Aaron. And a lot of the time when when they go and speak before Israel, it's Aaron who's doing the speaking, not Moses. God's will was being done, but Moses was missing out on the blessing. That's exactly what we risk, guys. When we drag our feet with what God is calling us to do, God in his providence is going to do it, but he will just step around and we'll miss out. I don't know about you, but I don't wanna miss out on what God's doing in the world. I wanna join hands with him and seeing lost people saved, and seeing creation restored, and seeing broken lives mended. Don't you wanna see that? What else could you want? What else could this life, what greater joy could we have in this life than partnering with what God is doing in our world? Bottom line, it's not about what we can or cannot do. It's not about our gifts, our talents, abilities, our shortcomings. We have confidence because God has promised us his presence. So we've seen that. We're to look to God's promises. We're to look to God's presence instead of at ourselves. Look with me now to verse 24. Sandwiched in between this passage that we're about to go through is uh, Moses' return to Egypt and uh, Moses and Aaron appearing before Israel and the people received them. But sandwiched in between that, I'm just giving us a preface here, sandwiched in between that is, is honestly one of the most difficult passages in all of scripture. This passage has really baffled interpreters and Christians for as long as there's been a church. So I don't pretend to have all the answers to this difficult passage, but I hope we can walk through it together knowing that it's inspired scripture, it's there for, our, for a purpose, for our benefit, and we need to hear it. I think this is one of the benefits of preaching through a book. Because if it were me, if I was just picking a passage to preach on, I would not pick this one. <laughs> Some of you are like, what version is he reading from? <laughs> My version doesn't have that. God has given it to us for a reason, it's difficult, but let's work through it together, okay? Look with me in verse 24. Verse 24, it says, on the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So basically what happens here is, um, is shocking. 
If you read that like we did at the beginning, verses 1 through 31, and you're just reading throughout the chapter, that really sticks out like a sore thumb. It just seems to come out of nowhere. It seems to jolt us, shock us. And we're left with two questions. Who is the Lord confronting and why is the Lord so angry he's intending to put him to death? Notice in verse 24, it says the Lord confronted him and, and intended to put him to death. It doesn't say Moses and it doesn't say his son Gershom. So you're left with a choice. Who is the Lord confronting and who is he intending to put to death? You either choose Moses' son for not being circumcised or Moses for not circumcising his son. I'm of the opinion that it's talking about Moses because of the immediate context. So if, if we're right about that, we're still left with the question of why is the Lord angry? Verse 25 clues us in, right? It, it mentions circumcision, right? Zipporah steps in, Moses' wife, and she circumcises their son and she throws the, uh, the foreskin at Moses' feet and she exclaims, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. A lot of things confusing in this passage. First, we need to understand the significance of circumcision. Circumcision was a, a physical sign of the, of the old covenant with Israel. It was instituted in, in Genesis 17, and every Israelite that was God's people, every Israelite male was circumcised on the eighth day, and that was a sign that they belonged to God. But notice that Moses had disobeyed. Gershom was born a while ago. That, that was mentioned in chapter 2. Moses was disobedient in what God had called him to do with his son. And this really shows us how serious a holy God is about our sin. One of the reasons why this passage is difficult is because it seems to come out of nowhere and it may even seem petty to us, right? Like Moses is already on his way to Egypt. He's obeying God. He's going to do what God has called him to do. And the Lord confronts him and he's gonna put him to death. But if it seems petty to us, I think we don't understand God's character. We serve a holy God who is serious about sin. We serve a God who never turns and looks the other way at sin. We serve a God who's so serious about sin, he sent his only son to die for us on the cross. So don't just look at Moses' behavior. Don't just look at Moses' behavior. Moses' problem is honestly a heart problem. God, in the Old Testament, numerous times uh, spoke that he didn't desire just an outward sign. He didn't just desire a circumcision of the flesh. He desired a circumcision of the heart. He says that over and over again. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God promised to do this one day for his people. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This was Israel's problem. It's what we encounter all the time. They did the outward things right, oftentimes, but the problem was that they didn't have the circumcision of the heart. Their heart had never been changed. They needed Jesus. They needed the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look with me, though, at, at, at Zipporah's actions in verse 25, what she does. She steps into the picture, and she circumcises her son, and she covers Moses with the blood. I think in this we have a beautiful yet strange picture of the gospel. Think about it. Moses' wife, Zipporah, she's faithful in his place. 
She does for him what he failed to do on his own. And in doing so, she takes the blood and she covers Moses with it. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the Passover, that Israel's doorposts would need to be covered with blood if the, the Lord was going to pass over the firstborn children. But it's also a foreshadowing of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the better Zipporah. He's the one who's been faithful in our place. The one who stepped into the picture and did something about our disobedience. Who averted the wrath of God, the anger of God. Moses faced death. Let's not forget that. Moses, God was so angry with Moses, he was gonna put him to death. And it was only the faithfulness of another and a blood covering that turned that anger away from Moses. And it's the same for us. Guys, outside of Christ, we are under the wrath and the anger of a holy God because of our sin. But Jesus does something about it. The only one who could, fully God, because he could do something about it, and fully man, because he was the only one who could represent us. And he dies in our place. So I want to ask you, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, have you been covered by the blood of Christ? There's no other solution to the wrath of God that is currently, not some future anger for your sin, but the wrath of God that's currently over you. Have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? Have you been made righteous? This chapter ends in worship. Look at verse 31, the last verse of our passage. Moses and Aaron go before the people. They perform the signs and it says, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them, and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. I believe that this passage would call for a similar response from us, that we believe God's word and that we worship. We, we bow our hearts and even our bodies and thank God for what he's done for us and his son, the better Zipporah, who turned God's wrath away from us and who covered us with not the blood of another, but his own precious blood. So in conclusion, instead of looking for signs, let's be people who look to the promises of God. Instead of looking at our own shortcomings, let's be people who look to the presence of God. And finally, in taking our eyes off of ourselves, let's look to the person God has provided for us, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank, I thank you for even the difficult parts that we, we don't understand on an initial reading. God, thank you that your, all of this is inspired, it's profitable for us, for training, for reproof. This is a difficult passage, Lord, that confronts us in our disobedience. It confronts us in our reluctance, our apathy. Help us, God, to take our eyes off of ourselves this upcoming week that we wouldn't focus on our own faithfulness, our own shortcomings, our own abilities, Lord, but that we would look to what you've provided for us. You've promised us that you will be with us wherever we go. Thank you for that, God. And we thank you most of all that you've given us your son as a blood covering, that you've saved us from your own wrath with your own son. You've united us with him in faith. 
Jesus, we worship you this morning and we thank you for that. Lord, if there's anyone here today who needs to be obedient to what they know God is calling them to do, would you convict them? Help them to take their eyes off of themselves even now and look to the one who's been faithful in their place. And in their awe and love for you, would they be called into obedience? If there's anyone here this morning who's an unbeliever, who does not know you, who's never met you, Jesus, who's never followed you in faith and repentance, Lord, would you bring them to faith even now? Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.